This is Deep Dish on Global Affairs, going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. I'm Brian Hansen with the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, and today we're talking about the conflict in Syria and U.S. strategy and goals in the region. This March marks nine years since the start of protests against the decades-long rule of the Assad family in Syria and the bloody crackdown and war that followed. In that time, hundreds of thousands of Syrians have been killed, millions have fled the country, and millions more have been internally displaced. In fact, right now, a humanitarian emergency in Idlib province threatens up to 900,000 lives. Also during this time, the Islamic State has first expanded its control and then due to ramped up campaign by the United States and others, saw its territory decimated in Syria and Iraq. And all along, Russia, Turkey, and Iran have vied for influence in the country. Yet nine years after it began, much remains unclear about what will come next and what the role of the United States should be in the region. I'm joined today by Joel Rayburn to help guide us through these questions. Joel is the current Deputy Assistant Secretary for Levant Affairs and Special Envoy for Syria. He previously served as Senior Director for Iran, Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon at the National Security Council. Welcome to Deep Dish, Joel. It's great to have you on. Oh, it's, uh, it's my pleasure to be here, Brian. So I want to start out, if you could share for us, what are the goals of U.S. policy in Syria. What do we want to see happen there? Well, the president gave us very clear guidance. Us, uh, uh, we who deal with the Syria uh, file, uh, gave us very clear guidance uh, in the spring of last year um, that the United States would be seeking three major strategic objectives in Syria. Uh, the first one is to achieve an enduring defeat of ISIS. In other words, uh, not just the military victory over the ISIS caliphate and over uh, the defeat of ISIS as a military force, let's say, in the field, but to do the things that come after uh, to stabilize communities, to uh, empower uh, local security forces so they can keep pressure on the remnants of ISIS so that there's not an opening for ISIS to come back. And uh, that's an approach that's based on um, what we experienced in Iraq over the years where we were able to achieve uh, a military defeat of a terrorist army, whether that's al-Qaeda in Iraq or ISIS in Iraq, only to see it begin to come back because uh, we didn't follow fully through to do political stabilization, economic stabilization, or uh, empower local security forces to be able to keep the pressure on. That's the first uh, major objective. Uh, second major objective is to achieve a withdrawal from Syria of all the Iranian commanded forces that are there. That's the uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, uh, especially the Quds Force, headed by uh, formerly by Qasem Soleimani, the now departed Qasem Soleimani. Now it's headed by a general named Ismail Ghani, who has picked up the baton from Soleimani. And there are a lot of Iranian-sponsored militias that are operating uh, in Syria. There are Iraqi Shia militants that the Quds Force brings in from Iraq. There are Afghan Hazaras who are brought in from Iran, uh, Afghanistan, and even some Pakistanis. There's Lebanese Hezbollah, and this is sort of a motley foreign legion uh, for the Iranian regime, and they use it to uh, wage war against Syrians. They use it to uh, try to establish power projection platforms that they can use to threaten Israel and Jordan, Turkey, uh, and other of, of Syria's regional neighbors. 
and they're such a destabilizing force in the Syrian conflict, and they engender such a backlash that actually fuels a group like ISIS or the or Al Qaeda uh, that it's really important that they leave Syria. Uh, that's the second major objective. The third major objective is to try to get a resolution of the underlying political conflict in Syria, uh, the conflict between the Assad regime and the Syrian people, really, uh, and to solve that uh, through the political process and the nationwide ceasefire that's called for in UN Security Council Resolution 2254, which is really, that that's our Bible, that's our roadmap, 2254, for a path, a political path out of the conflict that could begin to stabilize that broken country. We think this last one is important because if you don't solve the underlying political conflict, then you're going to continue to have an ISIS kind of problem or an al-Qaeda problem because ISIS, al-Qaeda, they feed on an underlying political conflict among Syria's communities or Iraq's communities or, or wherever they are. And also, the Iranian regime's military uh, projection into Syria. This is a manifestation of the underlying conflict, too. The reason that uh, the Iranian regime had an opening to come into Syria was the conflict. They rode in on the conflict, and, and they're entrenching themselves in Syria as a result of the conflict. So uh, if you don't solve the underlying political conflict, it'll be more difficult to get the Iranians, uh, uh, force the Iranians to leave. So those are our three major objectives. There are other things that we're trying to do in Syria that aren't uh, specific uh, solely to Syria. Uh, the Trump administration has a very strong interest in preventing the use and proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. So you can see, for example, we've actually, the president has twice ordered military action against the Assad regime's chemical weapons. Uh, and we also have a strong interest in trying to mitigate and, and uh, resolve the humanitarian crisis uh, that Syria, the conflict in Syria has created, uh, both for the good of those uh, people themselves, but also to help solve the refugee problem that's caused so much pressure on the surrounding countries in the region. It's been a problem for Europe and beyond. So these are, the, these are our major objectives in the Syrian conflict. Terrific. Lots to dig into there. Um, and let me start with ISIS. One of the you know, really remarkable developments, uh, positive developments, has been the end of the territorial caliphate for ISIS. And yet, as, as many point out, including um, you know, a DOD study, it's not, and, and your comments, um, that's not the end of the story. What is, what is your assessment of where we are in the conflict with ISIS and the likelihood of ISIS to be able to reestablish itself in some way? And what is the U.S. doing um, uh, in that regard to avoid that kind of outcome? Well, it, it was a really important thing uh, to defeat the ISIS territorial caliphate and to defeat ISIS as a field army, let's say. Uh, I mean, it, it was it was a really important step um, when President Trump came in. He gave us instructions, and I was in the White House on the National Security Council staff at that time, working on Iran, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, as you mentioned. Uh, he gave us instructions to try to accelerate the campaign against ISIS, to increase the pressure, to apply more resources if we need to needed to, including military resources, because at that time we were looking at an ISIS caliphate 
that controlled slash governed 8 million people. It stretched all the way from uh, northwestern Syria to down to the outskirts of Baghdad and over to the, to the verge of uh, Iraqi Kurdistan. There were two uh, Arab capitals that were under Mosul or uh, 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 ISIS's control, Raqqa and Mosul. I mean, Mosul is a, you know a centuries-old Arab uh, capital. So it, it's you can't understate what that signified to the Arab world that you had a terrorist group like ISIS in control of uh, uh, a great Arab city like Mosul. So it was it was absolutely imperative. Uh, to rob them of that and to rob them of their territory. They were able to tax that whole territory and, and generate resources. They were producing oil and exporting oil and getting vast oil revenues. They were conscripting from the population to fill their ranks. Uh, and and they, were, they were trying to establish a model of terrorist governance that was, that, that was hugely threatening uh, to the Arab world. So that had to be stopped. Uh, the, so the campaigns to roll that back and to rob them of Mosul in the summer of 2017 and of Raqqa in the fall of 2017, and then to keep the pursuit up, especially in the Euphrates Valley in Syria, that, that was an enormous priority uh, for the administration and for our, our allies. But everyone understood as we were doing it that just that, that defeating the caliphate, while it was an imperative, and defeating ISIS as a military force was an imperative, that wasn't going to be the end of the job. You were going to have, be, have to try to solve the things that created the conditions for ISIS to arise in the first place. You were going to have to uh, try to uh, inoculate, let's say, the local communities there against uh, the extremist ideology, against the idea that a caliphate is any kind of acceptable uh, political and governance model. Uh, uh, you're going to have to empower local security forces who could keep the pressure on the remnants of ISIS uh, after the collapse of the territorial caliphate. That's because uh, whether it, it ISIS or their predecessors, al-Qaeda in Iraq, uh, they, they, they always seek to control territory, but when they lose it, they don't just uh, evaporate. They revert to being a clandestine terrorist and insurgent network. And you have to then do the intelligence-driven and law enforcement-driven kind of operations to, to keep the pressure on them so they can't work in the dark and reestablish themselves in the dark and then get so strong in the dark that then they're able to burst back out into the daylight as they did uh, in Iraq in 2013-2014. Uh, you also have to have a strategy uh, to take into account the local grievances that ISIS and al-Qaeda are able to play upon. Uh, a lot of times those are political grievances from alienated populations that then become vulnerable to latching on to uh, ISIS patronage or an ISIS type of model of, of resistance. So th these are all things that, uh, uh, that we had to take into account. And where are we in that now? And, well, there, there's another element which, that, was, that was very interesting with ISIS, which is that they, they, be, they opened the floodgates for foreign fighters to come in from Europe, from North Africa, from uh, uh, from Central Asia, and so there was a concerted effort while 
the military pressure was going against the ISIS caliphate to try to cut off those uh, avenues for foreign fighters to come into Syria and Iraq, uh, uh, which, has, which has worked for the most part. Uh, to, in other words, to isolate uh, ISIS in Syria and Iraq from its foreign sources of support. That's a constant battle, and and that has to include things like you have to team up with uh, the the governments in Europe uh, to keep track of jihadis who might be rotating into the northern Middle East, and you have to track their movements. That's something that the European governments really didn't do before 2011. Uh, you have to rely on law enforcement systems in places like uh, the Gulf uh, that we really hadn't had to do before. And so it's it's a vast effort that 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 requires that kind of constant attention, not just to the battlefield. Uh, where we are in Syria, I can't really speak to where we are in Iraq. There are other experts who could handle that. Uh, but in Syria, uh, we we have a we have a good opening. Uh, we have we have some strong local security partners in northeast Syria, which is the zone where. Uh, the U.S.-led global coalition operates, uh, and we're we're continuing our partnership with uh, the Syrian Democratic Forces and other local forces to keep the local pressure on, let's say, on uh, on the remnants of ISIS, sleeper cells, terrorist networks, financial networks, and so on. That's getting uh, that's getting stronger over time, more capable over time. Uh, but we're continuing our campaign to try to uh, to try to help build that. Um, that local uh, security component out. What we're also trying to do is, uh, and this is necessary, we're trying to to help the locals. Uh, uh, I wouldn't to to help them stabilize their communities. You have in Syria communities along the Euphrates River, in particular, that were absolutely destroyed by ISIS and by the campaign to get ISIS out of there. So you have more than a million people in these mainly Arab communities on the Euphrates who just have nothing from Deir Ezzor down to the Iraqi border. They need electricity. They need water. They need economic support and, and so on. They need, they need schools. They need hospitals. Uh, ISIS took all of that out of them. Uh, so to help these communities stand back up on their feet, we've been encouraging other members of the Global Coalition. We've been, been encouraging regional neighbors uh, to come in and help resource uh, the stabilization of those communities so they can get back up and running so that you don't have destitute people who are vulnerable to influence by ISIS or control by ISIS. Uh, so that's really the phase that we're in now. It looks much more like law enforcement and much more like uh, trying to get the rest of the region, our allies in the rest of the region, to help establish, the, get these communities uh, back up on their feet is, is where we are in the campaign right now. So I want to address some of the other objectives that, that um, you laid out. And you mentioned the role of Iran in the in the country, as well as this broader agenda of bringing about a, a negotiated political settlement to the, to, the, to the conflict. What are the levers that the U.S. has to bring to bear? Because one, one of the things that people have noted is that our, our, our military presence has been pretty small and it's been, you know, uh, administrations, more than one administration has decided that's not the route to go down in order to advance our goals. So 
What are our main levers and how do we use them to have an impact on these goals? We, we have a lot of leverage. We, we have maybe more than, uh, than people think uh, as they look at this whole situation from the outside. Our military presence in Syria is geared toward the ISIS campaign. Um, it's uh, mostly uh, restricted to a northeastern zone uh, where the president gave the U.S. military instructions to keep the pressure up against ISIS and also uh, to protect the oil resources, uh, strategic resources that are in the northeast so that groups like ISIS or, or other adversaries in the United States can't get their hands on them and use them uh, to resource you know, malign activities against the United States or our, or our allies. So that's what the military uh, uh, component of this whole campaign is, is focused on. Beyond that, uh, we have leverage that we bring to bear against the Iranian regime, against the Assad regime and its other enablers to pressure them uh, to, to cease their uh, hostile activities against Syria's neighbors and to accede to a political solution to the conflict. That's uh, political pressure that we use. We spend a lot of our time ensuring that the international isolation of the Assad regime, its status as a pariah remains intact, that we don't have countries that start to wilt uh, to the idea of normalizing relations uh, with Assad. And that presumably includes things like economic sanctions and working? Uh, it's, a, it's political normalization is the, the necessary precursor for economic normalization. So I tend to think of it as two, as two separate but related things. We try to discourage uh, countries and organizations from reestablishing political relations, diplomatic relations with the Assad regime because money is going to follow. That's the only reason for the Assad regime, that the Assad regime wants it, uh, these kind of relations, is so that the money will follow. So our second set of tools uh, is economic sanctions, economic isolation of the Assad regime. We discourage others from reestablishing uh, economic activities uh, in Assad-controlled territory. We have a very strong set of sanctions authorities that we use uh, against the regime itself and anyone who wants to do business uh, with the regime. The purpose of that is not to penalize the Syrian government just for the sake of penalizing them or to penalize the Syrian people. Our sanctions, our economic pressure and economic isolation are aimed at trying to get this Assad regime to halt its slaughter and its campaign against the Syrian people and come to the table, uh, in Geneva in particular, and go through the political process to settle this conflict once and for all. Because that's that's the, the only way we think that there's any kind of sustainable outcome possible in Syria is through the political process. And we cling to, we stick to, we promote UN Security Council Resolution 2254 as the pathway out of the conflict. It's the only viable one that we have as an international community. So other international actors, of course, have played a big role uh, during the conflict. Uh, one of those um, being Russia, uh, which has militarily supported the Assad regime in a very strong way. What do you see that Russia is trying to achieve in the conflict with Syria? The Russians, uh, what they claim and what they do uh, may be two different things. 
the the Russians explain their involvement in Syria as an exercise in counterterrorism. They're there to fight the terrorists. Uh, the problem with that is that they wind up uh, attacking the Syrian people uh, alongside the regime of Bashar al-Assad. Uh, so it seems it seems what they're actually after the Russians is a military solution to this political conflict. Um, which ignores the fact that there are there, the the Syrian conflict has political causes. It's a grievance of a huge portion of the Syrian people against the regime and the the nature of the regime, the regime's behavior toward the people. Uh, so that's you you will not solve that sustainably by force, by just killing your way out of it. But that has been Assad's approach, and the the Russians appear to be on a path to simply enabling that approach. And the Russians seem to be uh, uh, to have decided on a course to try to help the Assad regime win a military outcome to what is a political problem, which will not yield uh, a real solution to the underlying political problems. And it won't solve the problem that the rest of us have of terrorism and half the Syrian people driven from their homes and uh, becoming a burden on the rest of uh, the region and Europe and potentially destabilizing the, those countries. And it won't stop the problem of the Assad regime having historically had a grand strategy in the region of being uh, hostile to all of its neighbors and seeking to destabilize all, all of its neighbors. Um, what we're after is to try to persuade, convince, pressure uh, the Russians and the Assad regime to give up this quest and one that we think is futile for a military outcome to a political conflict and instead to take the political path and to get a political solution to this conflict uh, and to try to achieve political reconciliation in Syria, to try to change the relationship between the Syrian government and its people and between the Syrian government and the surrounding region so that this region can calm down for once. So some people who look at the region and look at what Russia has done and been willing to do in supporting the Assad regime argue that Russia's power and influence in the region and in Syria have increased substantially at the expense of the United States, and that's something that our country should worry about. How do you how do you view this this issue? Is is this a case of the U.S. getting pushed out by Russia showing up? How should we be thinking about this? I don't think so. Uh, if you look at the 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 strength, the inherent strength of uh, let's say the the U.S. Uh, supported the U.S. led security arrangement in the region. Uh, it's pretty strong when you take into account our NATO ally Turkey. When you take into account our other allies and partners in the region, including Egypt, the Gulf states, Israel, Jordan, uh, uh, the the Iraqi government. In many ways, this is a pretty strong uh, coalition so to speak. And then, of course, you have the global counter-ISIS coalition, which is, uh, it's, it's uh, more than 70 countries uh, who are involved politically, economically, mil militarily 
in the northern Middle East uh, against the ISIS problem. So we still have quite a bit of uh, leverage and strength in that region. I don't think there's, uh, I don't, th certainly there are powers who are operating in the region who would like to see us uh, pushed out of the region. Um, but I, I don't see them uh, being successful in that. I mean, the Iranian regime is first and foremost. Uh, but the Iranian regime, uh, um, the Iranian regime engenders such a backlash with its heavy-handed, destabilizing power projection into the Arab world that it's hard to see them uh, succeeding in that sustainably, um, especially when they're they're now having to react to the economic pressure uh, that we and our uh, and many of our allies are are bringing to to bear against them. What we're after. In terms of the foreign involvement in Syria, the involvement of foreign powers in Syria, uh, what we see as a necessary element of the political solution in Syria <clears throat> is that the foreign forces that were the, the foreign forces that have arrived in Syria since 2011 should be gone at the end of the political process to solve the conflict. So that's the Turkish military, that's the Iranian military. The Iranian military, you know, uh, I think most importantly, um, that's uh, the Israeli Air Force, that's the U.S. military, ultimately. Uh, you know, we would, because if you can solve the underlying conflict and you can solve the ISIS campaign, you know, we, the United States, don't want to be in Syria uh, forever. So one of the developments that's happening right now with the strong support uh, perhaps even leadership of the Russians, is uh, the expansion and escalation of the conflict in the region known as Idlib, uh, where there is a concentration of um, opponents to the regime. And since about December, I think it is, there's been a, a real escalation in violence in that region. And the estimates of the number of people who are, um, who are fleeing or refugees in that area, as you know, is somewhere around 900,000 people, a, a terrible humanitarian you know, uh, crisis there. How does that set of events, how does today's set of events fit into the, the, the strategic environment that you've been talking about? And is there a role in the U for the U.S. in, you know, this part of the conflict? Sure. Uh, what's happening in Idlib is the most, is the clearest uh, manifestation of the Russians, Assad's and the Iranian regime's quest for a military outcome to this political conflict. Uh, what they are seeking to do is to essentially depopulate uh, the major uh, population centers of Idlib and West Aleppo uh, and parts of Latakia that have been in opposition hands uh, and then uh, sort of capture the opposition flag and then declare the conflict over. And then with the expectation that the rest of us will just have to give in and say, okay, well, they've got a military solution. Oh, gosh, I guess we all have to just abandon our interests. Uh, that's, what, that's what they're doing in Idlib. I think also that coalition of the Assad regime, Russia, and the Iranian regime uh, are not unhappy about creating a potential refugee catastrophe for Turkey and Europe. 
I think they view that as strategic leverage over Turkey and the Europeans. And it's also an example to other parts of Syria that remain beyond uh, the Assad regime's control, that see what we're doing to the people of Idlib and, and Aleppo? Well, that's what we have in store for you, unless you go ahead and submit in, in advance. Uh, when we when we come around, so they're trying to terrorize uh, that population as a lesson to everybody else, and and also to the population that still lives under Assad regime control, which is not very happy uh, with the Assad regime's governance, let's say, and economic uh, and the economic picture inside the Assad regime's territory. Uh, the the Syrian regime economy is in absolute meltdown. Uh, prices. Uh, have spiked to their highest of the entire nine-year conflict, uh, despite the Assad regime promising that there was going to be a victory dividend after the fall of Aleppo. Uh, the Syrian currency has crashed to uh, about, uh, it's over 1,000 to the dollar now. Uh, Pre-war, it was about 48 to the dollar. Uh, no one can afford uh, imports in that economy. So, and, and things will get, the forecast is worse. Uh, as, as time passes. The Assad regime doesn't have uh, an economic uh, way out of that, of that conundrum. Uh, so things are, not, uh, th things are not wonderful in, uh, in the Assad regime territory. Disaffection is potentially there. Uh, so, and a military outcome in Idlib is not going to change those fundamental dynamics for the Assad regime. Uh, what we are trying to do is uh, alongside our NATO allies, Turkey, and our other regional allies and partners, is to bring political pressure and economic pressure to bear on that coalition of the Assad regime, the Iranian regime, and Russia to stop this quest for a military outcome to the conflict and instead to, uh, uh, to take the political path out of the conflict. Um, so the sanctions that we bring to bear, the the the, the political pressure by maintaining the international isolation of the Assad regime and its supporters, these are the things that we're, that we're seeking to do right now. And in addition to the, the economic, you know, the economic challenges and, and really, you know, devastation uh, that the regime faces, do you see other indicators or what other indicators would you encourage us to keep an eye on for moving the regime and moving that coalition of support for the Assad regime toward a negotiated settlement path. What should we be paying attention to? One thing, well, what the Assad regime and its friends have been hoping for is that they can, they can uh, create military facts on the ground and then there will be international actors that will respond to those military facts by coming in and basically bailing the Assad regime out economically, in particular, but also politically. Um, and they, this, it's quite a gamble on their part, but this is, this is the logic uh, on, on their side of it. So if you don't see the international cavalry coming to the Assad regime's rescue and you see the economic situation continue to deteriorate, and I don't, we, we don't see any reason why it won't, and in fact we, we have our sanctions authorities that we intend to apply to make sure that it doesn't, then that's an indicator that the Assad regime and its friends are, are just, they're not going to have the resources to keep up the military solution or to, or to try to stabilize the country by force, by fear, by terror on the Assad regime and on the Iranian regimes and on Russia's terms. 
that's that's the that's the first indicator. I think also uh, another indicator has to do with the Assad regime's military capabilities, their inherent military strength. This the the we have watched over nine years of war the the Syrian military that existed in 2011 become hollow, decrepit. Uh, essentially, its command and control has broken down. Its discipline has broken down. Its composition has broken down. Um, there, it revolved around a core of Alawite military manpower before 2011. That's largely gone now. There are whole towns, villages in the Alawite heartlands up in the coastal area and the mountainous area in northeast, northwest Syria, that are bereft of men bereft of military age men. They're all dead or or disabled. And there's nothing left in the cupboard. So the Assad regime has has killed off a whole generation of Alawite men. Or or they've driven them to leave the country to try to get out of the conflict and go to Europe or to go elsewhere in the in in the Middle East. So watch for those signs of the uh, those of the brittleness, the brittle nature of the Assad regime's uh, military and the apparatus that they use to try to control the Syrian society by force. Uh, when you see them gathering military strength in one place, which they then have to expend uh, to try to take territory, you find them having to be weaker uh, to 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 deliberately become weaker in other places. So right now we see the Assad regime concentrating everything it has up in Idlib and West Aleppo and uncovering places like the ISIS heartland around Palmyra, which is why Palmyra today is still uh, a place where ISIS is very active and threatening to come back. You find then it, they, the Assad regime, by concentrating in the Northwest, has had to uncover a lot of the Southwest, Dara province, Suweta province, Dara province being the place where the Syrian revolution was born. Now there's a, there's a low-level insurgency against the Assad regime has broken out again in Dara and protests virtually every week uh, against the Assad regime. And the Assad regime doesn't have the means to cover all these places at once. And it's never going to, we think. So you get, a, or we come back around to the judgment that there is no really feasible military outcome to this conflict for the Assad regime and its allies. And they need to come back to the table if, if they're really going to solve the conflict. So one of the things that has, has happened is that Syria has um, you know, fallen from the front pages. Um, and there is a perspective, and I'm a, I'm a chair a, a um, version of this that I would like to just ask you how you think about. And, uh, you know, it was just articulated by Angelina Jolie, who's an actress and, of course, and writes in the newest issue of Time magazine um, about what she calls an inaction in Syria. And you've talked about all the actions we're having. So I don't expect you to agree with this, but just, you know, how, how do you encourage people uh, to think about this. She writes of Americans, when did we stop wanting to stand up for the underdog, for the indecent, for those fighting for their human rights? And what kind of country would be, we be if we abandoned that principle? 
She adds, we should be using our diplomatic power to insist on a ceasefire, a negotiated peace based on at least some measure of political participation, accountability, and conditions for the safe return of refugees. How do you respond to people who express those kinds of concerns? Well, I think the, the, the approach that she describes is very much in line with what we're trying to do. I think I would agree with her. Uh, we should be using our, our diplomatic tools to, to get a nationwide ceasefire, which is that's called for in UNSCR 2254, uh, to get a political settlement of the conflict to get more political participation so that you can have political reconciliation in Syria. These are all things that we're trying to bring about. I agree with her uh, uh, wholeheartedly. Absolutely. So as we close, what do you expect the situation when we look back, say, five years from now? What do you expect the situation to look like in Syria? I I often tell my, uh, my team uh, I would rather be playing with our cards than with the other side's cards. I think that um, what, what we're doing in Syria is uh, the pressure campaign that we have against the Assad regime and its enablers, this is relatively low cost for us. It's enormously costly for them. Um, the Assad regime has an uphill battle. Uh, it has an uphill battle because it's a pariah state that has killed uh probably more than half a million of its own people. Probably more than 200,000 Syrians have disappeared into the Assad regime's jails. Uh, it's very difficult for a regime like that to go and market itself as, for a, a normalization of ties with, uh, with the international community. Um, the Assad regime also they doesn't have, they're not an economic powerhouse, they never were. Uh, and they're going to have great difficulty uh, marshalling the resources to to keep going in the way they have, to keep going with constant military operations, with constant with a huge uh, uh, apparatus of control and security across that country. And the Assad regime's major allies are are not exactly well positioned to continue to resource that either. The Iranian regime is under a lot of pressure. Uh, as part of our maximum pressure campaign and other international uh, uh, opposition to it. And, and for the Russians to keep this uh, approach up, it can, uh, you know, risks becoming very costly as well, probably in a way that, that uh, they may not be able uh, to sustain. So I think uh, a political, the political path, there, there's there's going to come a point where, it, or, or as time passes, it'll become clearer and clearer that there can only be a political solution to this conflict. And the pressure for the other side that's seeking something other than a political solution, for them to accede to the political process, I think will become greater and greater over time. Um, what they will be doing in the meantime is trying to make a political solution more difficult because they will be trying to create waves of refugees. They will be using uh, military weapons against civilian populations. They'll be targeting hospitals and, and things like this and trying to do it with, Im with impunity. But I just don't see that. I just don't see that succeeding. We, th we the U.S., uh, the Trump administration has some pretty simple conditions 
for having normal relations with the Syrian government, whether it's the current one or any future one. That's first, that they need to sever their military relationship with the Iranian regime, and especially the IRGC and its militant proxies. Second, they need to cease their state sponsorship of terrorism. Third, they need to cease being hostile to and a threat to their regional neighbors. Fourth, they need to surrender their weapons of mass destruction, dismantle their weapons of mass destruction programs verifiably. Fifth, they need to create the conditions on the ground for refugees and IDPs to return safely to their homes. And sixth, they need to hold war criminals accountable or they need to let the international community do that. These are not particularly, th th these aren't difficult things uh, for us to demand. And they're reasonable things for us to demand. The, the Syrian government, if it wants to be treated normally, should behave normally. Yeah, so uh, there's not going to be a rapprochement between the United States and the government in Damascus until they meet these pretty clear-cut demands. So going forward, if they don't accede to the political process, then I think they're going to continue in economic meltdown. They're going to continue to deteriorate uh, militarily. They're going to continue to have problems covering all of the country that they want to cover. And they're not going to have any rescue from the international community and certainly not from the United States. Joel Rayburn, Deputy Assistant Secretary for Levant Affairs and Special Envoy for Syria. I want to thank you for being on Deep Dish to really share your view of the situation in Syria, as well as to help us understand what current U.S. policy is and our path forward there. Thank well, you so much. You're very welcome, and thank you for the invitation. And I want to thank you for tuning into this episode of Deep Dish as well. If you like the show, do me a favor and tap the subscribe button in your podcast app so you can get each and every episode as it's released. You can find our show under Deep Dish on Global Affairs wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you think you know someone who would like today's episode, please tap the share button and send it to them as well. As a reminder, the opinions you heard belong to the people who express them and not the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Our audio engineer for this episode is Andy Zarnecki. I'm Brian Hansen, and we'll be back soon with another slice of Deep Dish. <laughs>